Before I start the show, I want to take time to shout out the Virtual Speed and Performance Clinic, sponsored by Simply Faster. It's virtual, meaning you can attend from anywhere. And when you purchase, you'll receive lifetime access to eight webinars and eight Zoom Q&A sessions. Who doesn't want to validate their training? When you purchase access, you will also be entered into a raffle with a chance to win a free lap timing system. Tyler Germain put on a great clinic last year, and he's doing it again this year. There's a great list of speakers for this year's event, and there really is something for everyone, ranging from rotational and overhead considerations to strength and SNC principles, and of course, the pursuit of speed. So here's what I got from my listeners. $15 off the price of admission when you use my personal code FTGUPOD15 at checkout. That'll take the price from $90 to $75. And again, that's FTGUPOD15. I'll provide links for the clinic in my show notes. Simply put, this is too good of a deal to pass up. Now, on to the show. Today's guest is Pat Byrne, co-author of Inconvenient Sleep, Why Teams Win and Lose. He also manages Burn Fatigue Consulting, where he's able to monitor and make actionable suggestions to optimize recovery of athletes and individuals across a wide array of sports and sectors. We so often focus on the means of preparation without giving recovery methods their due diligence. Today, we'll examine some of the biggest sources of stress and how they affect the human body. We'll also examine how important sleep is for living an optimized life and discuss some of the manners that we can optimize our sleep patterns with. We'll also talk about how important it is to start your day right and some of the ways in which we can prepare to conquer the day. This is a topic I'm truly passionate about as we often find that small changes can have major impacts on our quality of life. Pat's been involved in this sector for some time and provides great rationale and suggestions in today's show. So without further ado, let's get to it. Welcome to From the Ground Up Athletic Performance Podcast. I'm your host, Jesse Curtis, and my guest today is Pat Byrne. And I'm really excited about today's talk because it's an opportunity for me to kind of flip the script and focus on an aspect uh, that's a little bit different. We're focusing kind of on the recovery side of things in regards to athletic development and performance. Uh, and this is kind of a passion of mine that I haven't had an opportunity to really have anybody on yet uh, to speak with. So it's something that in my own time, I really like to research and look at because why teams win and lose perhaps. Uh, and it can really have a cascading effect on a lot of different aspects within athletic development and in our own lives. Uh, I'm just interested from even a health aspect because there's so many small steps we can take can really change things around. So what I'm going to do now is I'm going to pass it over to Pat and allow him to introduce himself because he's been in this for quite some time. uh, And he's also worked with a lot of different people in a lot of different areas in regards to this. So just allowing you to introduce yourself right now. I appreciate that, Jesse. Yeah, well, as I said, my name is Pat Byrne. I got that part right today. I'm in uh, Vancouver, British Columbia. Um, I've been involved with uh, sleep and athletic performance now for almost 14 years. And I got got involved with it many years ago in in a bit of a a sad way. I had a young nephew who was a a local baseball star in high school here. You know, he was playing in the uh, provincial championship game, one game to the whole like a state state championship game. And his job was to guard Steve Nash. <laughs> the great Steve Nash. <laughs> the great Steve Nash and Steve was in, uh, in high school. And uh, it was a tough job. Steve's team won, obviously. And so Steve went off to Santa Clara and on to a great NBA career. And, and ironically, um, many years later, I actually ended up uh, working with the D- Dallas Mavs and, and, and some of Steve's coworkers. And, and my nephew uh, went off and got a didn't give up on basketball, but he gave up on uh, in college, playing college. And he went into forestry and got a forestry degree and went into work long hours in the forest industry and driving home on a Friday night, fell asleep, drove his car off a cliff and died when I was 22 years old. And so I had been involved in health and safety, you know, worker health and safety for many years. And I just kind of snapped my head around and said, how do, you know, what is this thing about sleep and how it affects people's performance and you know i can even die from it right and you know i always say because i speak to a lot of a lot of different groups not just athletes i speak to you know special ops people i speak to military police firefighters and i say you know if you're tired if you're an athlete and you're tired you can lose a game 
if you're a worker and you're tired, you can lose your life. Right? And although I've, we've seen athletes fall asleep as well, you know, driving and other sorts of things. So it's, 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 it's serious. So that's, I got involved with that. And then um, I started a small business just, you know, teaching about um, athletes. And, and then Mike Gillis, who was the, the new president, general manager of the Vancouver Canucks, came to me, a local guy, and said, can you, you know, what can you do to help us with our travel? And I ended up spending seven seasons with the Canucks. Um, learned a lot. And then, you know, I went on, I worked with uh, Seahawks, um, you know, when they won the Super Bowl. I worked, you know, with the Dallas Mavericks and Brooklyn Nets. I worked cross baseball, um, virtually every, and uh, other hockey teams, virtually every sport in North America. And then I was, went to Australia and I worked with all the sporting teams in Australia as well. I've learned a lot and there are a lot of similarities and a lot of differences between the sports, but, you know, human performance is human performance. You know, whether you're playing the piano or playing basketball, <laughs> what do you do? You know, you're, you're susceptible to performance issues. A great lead in there. And, you know, naturally I would be remiss if I didn't do my research. So I did kind of know uh, about what your source was coming into this. And, you know, it's, it is sad that most of us probably, know someone either directly related to us or someone that we went to school with or something that that had a tragic accident kind of like that so it is a very common occurrence Uh, and I see it even with I'm a school teacher as well as athletic performance involved in athletic performance and you just see kids they seem so fatigued all the time Uh, and we think it's a personality trait but I really think a lot of it is lends itself to some of the lifestyle choices that we're going to talk about today and some of the scientific uh, factors that we might just kind of push off or not really uh, give credit to. So the first place I would kind of like to start is just the idea of stress, because, you know, until I started thinking about my workload in athletic performance as stress, that just flipped everything on its head. Wait, you mean what I'm doing is stressing them right now? You you know, you don't have those thoughts whenever you're young in the game and you're just starting. So can we start out by talking about, and in the modern world, we're just so full of stress, uh, stressful situations. We create them ourselves often. So can we start out by talking some of the most common stressors that you often deal with in regards to sports performance and the uh, populations that you deal with there? Sure, absolutely. You know, and and this is not just professional athletes. This is, uh, you know, uh, college athletes, high school athletes. And if you think about particularly college and, and high school athletes is what's on their plate. So they have to balance the academics they have. They have to balance the athletics. They have to balance their families. They have to balance their friendships um, and, and their own quiet time. And they're left to do that on their own. So that's very stressful. You don't see, it's rare to see, even in college, for the academic people, to, the academic advisors to be talking to the athletic advisors. So everybody puts their, indep- and the same with families, they put independent pressure on, on these athletes. And they don't even teach them things like time management. So these guys are, you know, girls and boys are, are left on their own. And, and it's incredibly stressful. Uh, my own daughter played volleyball in the NCAA in New York. And, you know, they, they would have to do their homework in the van driving to games Friday nights. <laughs> right. Um, and so it's, it, it, that creates a lot of stress. On the professional side, you'd think, you know, they have similar but somewhat different stressors. They have a, a bit more di- downtown. They're not normally... Uh, balancing academics or balancing their checkbooks, maybe I don't know. <laughs> I'd be too facetious, but they they um, they have they have different stressors, but um, at particularly performance and contract because that's how they're making their living. It's not just winning a game and you know and performing for people. That's how they make their living. So it's it, it's different stressors for pros. And a lot of the times we don't realize like that our brain is wired to perhaps we see everything as a threat or not everything, but we see oftentimes things that are threats that we don't realize. And it just sparks into motion, this cascading effect, which we're talking about as far as stress. We'll probably mention a little bit about the autonomic nervous system and all that different stuff because it relates to control uh, and a lot of things in relation to sleep. But we don't realize constantly checking social media, constantly uh, working, bringing computers into the bedroom, all these different things that we'll probably mention. We just are setting ourselves up for failure on multiple fronts by doing that. And I liked how you talked about, we don't ever take into account the fact that we think we have these individualized buckets. Really, that athlete is one bucket. And every time that we take a dip out of that bucket, there's only so much that can be dipped out of there in one day before there's a negative consequence, before no adaptation can occur, before learning stops, you know, we could go on and on. Uh, So stress is just, 
it's the most important consideration, load and stress for me. I really, really uh, take heed of that whenever planning and programming. Yeah, I think that's a really important point. And, and one of the things that's missing both in sleep research and I think in strength and conditioning and other aspects of professional sports is um, we tend not to treat athletes both as individuals and to understand that they're an integrated system. You know, one of the great things, and we talk about this in our book, great things about our medical profession, even, you know, we have eye specialists and, and you know, sleep specialists and heart specialists. <laughs> it goes on and on and on. But we're really an integrated system. All of these things are connected, right? So sleep is connected to stress, which is, you know, there's diet considerations, exercise, you know, the timing of things. So everything we do is integrated together. You know, we're like one big jigsaw puzzle. And, you, you know, each profession tends to, you know, put the magnifying glass on their area, which is good. I mean, we have, if you have an eye problem, you want to go see an eye specialist. <laughs> But when you're dealing with athletes, you have to understand that nobody's really putting all those pieces together for them. Right? And so they'll find stress, particularly now with wearables, with people, they're saying, oh, you know, you need to track your sleep or you need to track your motion, you need to track all these things. All it does is add stress to the athletes because they're not really taught what to do with the data. And that's true with strength and conditioning um, and, and other information is, is, is the athletes are often directed by coaches, but they don't often understand why they're doing certain things. Yeah. And we don't have to go quite this deep. We can later on if you, if you mm. wish to, but the cyclic nature of, of life, I never really realized like how cyclic we are as far as a creature at a biological scale until I really started to look into that. I mean, our life is literally a series of patterns and we can disrupt those patterns. And you kind of, like we alluded to, we play catch up, uh, which, which we'll get there. We try to, and that's whenever we begin to feel fatigued or things feel off. We're, we're habitual for a reason. I myself am very habitual and I enjoy that because it's just a cyclic nature of life. We at the cellular level, we're like that. Uh, so we'll probably get into that in a moment. And it has to do with timing. Uh, so that I'd like to kind of press on because a series of stress could be timing. It, to me, timing is everything. You know, at the college level, you have a certain amount of hours you can work athletes. But like you said, they have academic responsibilities and all these different things. Uh, so it's going to depend on the setting, obviously. But I guess whenever we're looking at this, I'd like to think of some of the drawbacks of working out extremely early of working out extremely late. Some of the ways that maybe we can optimize the times that we choose to push our athletes uh, as far as in regards to time. Right. So what happens in, in pro sports and, and college high school sports is uh, people like yourselves and the others schedule workouts. And it's, and unfortunately for athletes, it's an individual need. So there's a huge area um, uh, called chronobiology, which is pretty new research. It's been around for a while, but it's getting more and more uh, involved with, with uh, athletics. So the premise of that is this, is that our, our bodies work on a 24-hour clock for the most part. And virtually every cell in our body has a clock, but we all have slightly different clocks. So there are kind of two drivers of fatigue for athletes. One is sleep and how much sleep you've had and the quality of your sleep. And the other is simply the time of day. And so you have, even if you're a good sleeper, you're a lot more tired at, you know, two in the uh, two in the morning than you are at two in the afternoon, and that's because our brains are triggered to sunlight. So what happens when you're exposed to sunlight? It goes, it goes through your eyes right into your brain and tells you you should be awake and you're 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 good to go. Um, and then at nighttime, um, you get the opposite effect, right? Your body starts putting out melatonin, and when it's dark out, and it helps put you to sleep. The difficulty for athletes is trying to understand what their pattern looks like. Um, and there's actually a simple um, high school experiment that you can do, which is just to ask the athletes to measure their body temperature every hour while they're awake, even for a day, two days better, but for a day. And you could actually follow their, their natural circadian rhythm, which will tell them where their optimal performance is. So the, the, the higher body temperature is higher optimal performance. And so you can, you can predict that there's software around that'll predict that can do that. We use that kind of software when I was with the Canucks, um, which is US Air Force technology to keep their pilots fresh. And so we superimpose that technology into, into the National Hockey League. So instead of you know, putting into the software, um, you know, bombing Baghdad at this time, or is, is the pilot fresh? We say, you got a game in New York, are the players fresh? My point is that, is that in terms of picking times for 
for optimal both game performance and for workout performance is you need to understand what the athlete's circadian rhythms look like. Um, the optimal time for games typically is around seven o'clock, but that can vary by a few hours. There are what are called morning people and evening people, afternoon people. So they're often broken down into owls and larks sort of things. So there are people who naturally call owls naturally stay up late and sleep in in the morning. And there are people that um, naturally go to bed early and get up early because they call them larks. And that's just based on your own internal clocks. Or only, and, and there's some really good research now showing that in certain sports, if you're an, uh, if you're an owl, that you actually perform better at certain times than, with, than if you're a lark. So, you know, the challenge I think for athletics is that everybody tends to work out at the same time because that's when you get the facility, right? So you have the notorious sports or things like swimming, right? You get the pool early in the morning, everybody has to go early, regardless of whether you're an owl, you're a lark. And so there are some people that will take advantage of that and some people that can't take advantage of that. And hockey is the same way. It's, you know, four or five o'clock in the morning, hockey practices are common. And, and what about as far as like, I don't know if you've seen any research as far as the amount of hours in between sessions, perhaps as far as like stress, uh, stressors. I know that at different times you want different adaptations, but quick turnarounds, because sometimes that happens, like in what you're referencing here, you need access to a facility uh, and you have to have a quick turnaround in order to get all of the work. And then you have to have that balance. You know, do I risk hurting someone more than I'm what I'm going to gain from the work? But I didn't know if you've seen anything as far as like optimal rest periods or just, you know, broad, broad suggestions on that. I haven't seen too much. That's not kind of my real area of expertise, although I've worked with strength and conditioning people all over the all over the world. It really comes down to understanding um, your athletes as individuals and what they're capable of doing. Some athletes are capable of doing more and others aren't. Right. And it's, it's very difficult to do, particularly at a high school and college level, because there's, you know, the facilities are in, are in demand and, and it's very difficult to, to stagger those sorts of things. And pro leagues, it's, particularly when they're home, it's way easier to stagger things for the individual athletes. But it's trying to really understand how much stress each individual athlete can take. Yeah. And then we're, we get into the, the point of basically that we're driving so much centralized fatigue that's that's going to be derived from the nervous system at that point. And to me, yes, it's a, you don't want to get injuries at all. But whenever it's deriving from the nervous system so much, to me, it seems like the injuries tend to be larger injuries uh, in nature, whereas whenever you have more peripheral fatigue, the muscles, they, they, the coordination of muscles might not be quite as off. So centralized fatigue like that to me is always a danger in dynamic uh, situations. Yeah. I, I mean, of all the sports teams I've worked with literally around the world, that's sort of like the $64,000 question. All of the teams want to know uh, <laughs> how far can we push these guys without getting injured, without injuries, right? Whether it's travel or sleep or workouts, they're trying to maximize performance, maximize performance. And, and it's something that every, every team I know is working on and trying to do. So it, it's, it's, it's a, it's, it's a difficult, it's a difficult issue. And, and there aren't any, there aren't any great answers to it unless you really understand and the athletes themselves understand what their limits are. Yeah, it's it's crazy. Um, before we go on to like sleep and, and all these other things, just dealing with high school athletes, I'll deal with a lot of them in the summer and they play multiple sports or football players. I'm working them out to, for that, but they have summer league basketball or they have uh, baseball, travel ball. They'll be out till eight o'clock at night playing. And then we have a morning workout, you know, and, and timing of that. It's just there's just so many uh, variables going on whenever you have young athletes, especially multi-sport athletes uh, in dealing with that. Uh, that's kind of what, you know, drove my interest into this particular area uh, and field. So before we get into the specifics with sleep, I guess let's talk about why it's important, because you've, you've thought it's so important that you've wrote a book. It's called Inconvenient Sleep. And that's funny because. I think that's how a lot of people view sleep instead of thinking about it as scientific. It's like, it's a necessity. Uh, I must do it, but it doesn't mean I have to be optimal in it because perhaps we don't understand everything that we can derive from it. Uh, so you've got a great book out inconvenient sleep why teams win and lose. And if it's that big, 
uh, of a deal. You know, you think in athletic performance, most people would want to listen. So let's talk about some of the different particulars about why sleep is so necessary. It's it's a natural occurrence. It's it's really what balances us. So why is sleep so important? What are some of the high points we need to understand about why we need to optimize sleep? It's interesting. You know, it's my favorite topic. So I, I'll, try, I'll try not to <laughs> put everybody to sleep t- talking to you about it. No, no. Um, but so what happens in the human brain when you were asleep, I, when I was born, the entire scientific community thought that nothing was going on in your brain while you were, when you were sleeping. You just, you know, the lights went off, you were in a coma and you woke up. And we now know that that's not true. There's a lot of stuff that's going on in your brain right now. You can look at um, some scientific imaging and actually see one of the things that happens in your brain when you're asleep is your brain actually shrinks a bit and, and, and liquid circulates around your brain to clean the waste out of your brain. And the analogy I like to use for athletes is to say, think about it this way. It's when you go to sleep, it's a bit like putting your car in the shop and, you know, they're tuning it up and fixing the tires and oiling it up and gassing it up and getting ready. And so at the end of, you know, for example, eight hours of sleep, you hop in your car and you're good to go all day. Right. But if you're getting four or five hours of sleep or six hours of sleep, the car's not ready. You're pulling out of the, out of the shop with, you know, half a tank of gas. So sleep is important that way, but certainly for a lot of athletes, particularly in uh, pro football, they have to learn, you know, 50 or 60 new plays a week is that when you sleep, your, your brain can, takes memory from short-term memory into long-term memory. So you can remember things. And there's some great, great studies, a lot of them done by uh, military academies showing that the longer you sleep, the better your memory and the better you do on academic tests. Um, in fact, they have showed the difference between six and eight hours of sleep on academic tests is the difference to 12, 12% on exams. And so there's that aspect. It was just memory consolidation. But there's also from an athletic perspective is reaction time. So there's different ways to measure reaction time. There's what's called simple reaction time. You can go on the internet and they have these little games you can play. So basically a light shows up and you have to react as fast as you can to the light. That's what's called simple reaction time. And there's what's called complex reaction time, which is you'll have, instead of one light, you'll have three lights, a red, white, and blue one, for example. And if the blue one lights up, you have to hit the blue button. So you have to, there's a little bit of thought process that goes in there. So it's naturally a bit slower. But what they've done over the years is correlate sleep hours, sleep quality, and sleep quantity with reaction time. And so we know what the optimum reaction time is. We know that there's a huge difference between four hours, six hours, eight hours, nine hours of sleep and your reaction time. So that once we show those kinds of graphs to athletes, then they, they get it. If you've got slow reaction time in most sports, you're going to lose. That said, and we talked a bit about circadian rhythms here, this timing. So there's a natural, even if you're a good sleeper, your reaction time changes about 10% during the day just based on the time of day. That's why most of the professional sports leagues uh, games play at seven o'clock at night. That's actually the optimum kind of time. That's when your temperature's at max. That's when your reaction time is at max. Um, and that's why they play, uh, play a lot of the games. So you have um, the reaction side of it. And we also know because if your reaction time is slow, um, there can be an increase in injuries. Certainly that happens in industry, whether you're in trucking or flying airplanes or anything else, your reaction time is slow. What we discovered with studying the sleep uh, and a reaction time of players with the Vancouver Canucks over seven seasons was that if they, if their reaction time dropped to 90%, so they were 10% slower than they should be, they lost the vast majority of those games. And based on how they travel and what their sleep patterns looked like, we could almost predict when they were going to win and when they were going to lose games at the beginning of the season. So then we had to go back and figure out how do we, you know, we know in these sort of back-to-back games, they're not going to get the sleep they need. So how do we find a way to optimize the sleep during those periods? And there's a lot of different things we talked about in the book that they did around that. But certainly for athletes, sleep is very critical in terms of um, performance, whether it's in a practice or whether it's a game. And we, we're all probably familiar with just like you wake up and it's just like you're just surviving for that day. I mean, I have days where, you know, you've had a late work day or maybe you have jet lag because you've traveled somewhere and you're just surviving. Like you're not learning. I don't care to learn anything for that day. I don't want to hear any new information. I'm, I'm just not having it. I'm just trying to put one foot in front of the other. Very easy to get used to a habitual lifestyle like that to where that seems like that is 
my optimized uh, life form. I can I can speak for that. But um, as far as uh, sleep and and where I kind of want to go with this, I was wondering some of the major data points that you're monitoring to justify this person is achieving sleep. Because we'll talk about sleep architecture in in a minute and the different because that's another cyclic thing that yeah. happens. Uh, so what are some of the different data points that that point to this person is achieving good sleep? They're fully recovered or they're you know reasonably recovered. That's complex. So a couple of things. First, sleep and, and, and athletic performance is pretty new science. I mean, we always expect quick answers to everything these days. <laughs> you know, 10 years ago, 12 years ago, when I first started, there was virtually no research. I think something like 80% or 90% of all of the research published on sleep and athletic performance has been done in the last decade. So a lot of this is new and, and, and people are learning. So one of the things that we, we discovered really was that sleep there's such so sleep duration. So how long you sleep matters and it matters by age. So teenagers really need eight or nine hours of sleep. Adults probably seven and a half, eight hours of sleep. Um, one of the things that's unhelpful to particularly younger athletes is there are some pros that are out bragging. They're getting 12 hours of sleep, putting pressure on the younger athletes to saying, you know, if you really want to perform, you have to do that. And quite frankly, I've never seen an athlete that sleeps 12 hours ever. It, it, you can't, you physically can't. And I've, I've talked to some of the professors at Stanford University Medical School around this. And what they've told me is, look, if you chronically sleep 12 hours every night, that's just your normal sleep pattern. There's something wrong with you. Like there's something biologically wrong with you. And one professor even said, he says, if you if that's true, he says, you'll be dead in five years. And the analogy that they said was like, look, if you can get your, you put your car in the shop and in eight hours, they can fix it all up and you're good to go for the day. If the shop's in the, in the car's in the shop for 12 hours and you're coming out and you're still not ready, there's something wrong with the car. <laughs> and biologically, it wouldn't make sense from an evolutionary perspective, because if you would have been laying down for 12 hours, then you're probably the one that's being consumed. So our body just hasn't been, you know, yeah. Uh, yeah. configured to work like that. So it makes a lot of sense. Right. So, so, so sleep duration matters and sleep quality matters. And so one of the difficult areas in trying to measure sleep, and we I don't know if we're going to get in and talk about wearables a bit, but there are people wear them all the time, the Fitbits of the world and all, all the rest of these things. They actually don't measure sleep. What they do is they measure um, motion. They measure motion on your wrist. And as one of my professor friends told me, you know, sleep is in your brain it's, or your brain is on your, in your head, not on your wrist. Um, but they've created algorithms over the years trying to predict based on wrist motion, whether you're awake or whether you're asleep. And some of those have gotten quite good, the algorithms, but all they can really tell you is whether you're awake or whether you're asleep. It really doesn't tell you anything about um, a lot of the bling that's attached to some of these gadgets now. Um, and so, but we, we, we've used them and I, I still use them with athletes, but mostly to figure out what their typical, when do they typically go to sleep and when do they wake up? and how disturbed is their sleep. So poor sleep, and, and it's, there's, I don't wanna make a distinction between poor sleep, chronic poor sleep, and acute poor sleep. So if you're normally a good sleeper, but you're just anxious because you got a, a game the next day, that's different than if you're chronically poor sleep. And th there are many, many, many causes of poor sleep. So there are what is called biological sleep disorders. And this happens to athletes all the time. They could have, there's over a hundred of them. So you could have like sleep, sleep apnea, restless leg syndrome, um, certain forms of insomnia. There are a lot of different biological uh, sleep disorders that can be treated, diagnosed and treated. So that's one thing that can disturb your sleep. Um, mental health is a huge problem with sleep. And so I like to say that sleep and mental health are two sides of the same coin. So there's some good research to show that poor sleep can lead to mental health issues and mental health issues. Uh, one of the signs of mental health issues are, is poor sleep. So there are two sides of the same coin and mental health is a huge problem in, in sport, both college and in, in, in professional ranks. So, you know, sleep is a, as a, a marker for that. And so that's, so that you have biological sleep disorders, you have um, mental health, there are organic diseases. I work with athletes that have broken ribs, for example, or diabetes, all of those can affect your sleep. And then there, yeah, there are lifestyle issues. So the choices that the athlete makes to stay up and watch movies or not to watch movies can affect their sleep. Um, and the team, right, you talked about, um, I've worked with teams, 
I work with one NFL team where they would come back after, after a Sunday uh, night game, fly in um, and get in late at night and have, you know, six, seven o'clock in the morning meetings the next day. And they say, well, why are you doing that? Because you know, we always did that. Well, what you're doing is robbing people of sleep. Right? And of course, your sleep environment, but also medications. If you're on any medications, read the bot, whether it's over the counter or prescription, read the labels. A lot of those can affect your sleep. So the challenge for athletes and, and, and for people like yourselves is to try to figure out what's causing the poor sleep because we know it'll affect athletic performance. But if you don't clearly understand what, what the cause or more likely causes of poor sleep are, you can't try to work with the athlete to help them with it. So much of the work now in, in sports around sleep is to basically educate the players, say, look, you need to get more sleep. All that does is create stresses for them unless you actually give them some help the analogy we use in our book is around strength and conditioning. It's exactly the same thing, right? I mean, strength and conditioning, if you walked into the room and dropped some barbells down and say, okay, guys, here's how you use them. I'll come back in a couple of weeks. I expect you to be in shape, right? People say, that's a joke because the athletes don't have the knowledge and they need hands-on help to get them to, to get into shape. And they need a plan for it. They need to, you know, an individual plan to get them into the kind of shape they need for their sport. Sleep is exactly the same way. You have teams that, you know, bring in a sleep specialist to tell the athletes, gee, you need to get more sleep. And, right, and, and, and that's where they stop. And I don't, I don't particularly blame um, the teams for that because sleep research is new, as, as we said. And strength and conditioning started out very much like sleep did. You know, 40 years ago, sleep, uh, strength and conditioning was nobody, nobody was doing it. Like nobody knew anything about it. Now you, th there's not a team in the world that doesn't have a strength and conditioning specialist to help the players. Mm. And sleep is sleep is where strength and conditioning was 40 years ago. I, I'm not outing anybody for this, but yeah. I, I love these generalized posts we make to like the biggest thing that there is, is recovery or sleep. And, and, and that's, that's where we stop it right there. And I love to look at it through the scientific lens too, to understand how much I need and how we can better help people here. And there's nothing wrong with that. I'm glad people are pushing for recovery because that's why I'm excited to have you today. Balance the scale a little bit. We talk so much about performance, but we can't perform if we don't recover. So if you, if we could talk a little bit about this before we go into how we optimize our sleep habits and some of the things we want, we might want to do and some of the things we might want to avoid just to, so people understand how we function whenever we sleep a little bit there are different stages of sleep uh, that we cycle through like we've mm -hmm. talked about multiple times so if we can kind of hit on some of those because I feel like if we hit on those we might talk about how we may have sleep disruption someone may come to you and go but I'm sleeping coach I'm going to sleep you know I'm, mm -hmm. I'm getting eight hours well are there any disruptions uh, because there's different patterns and you're more susceptible to wake up in certain patterns mm -hmm. and you're not as recovered if you uh, don't achieve this, the cyclic nature of sleep. So I'll pass it over to the expert for that. <laughs> Appreciate that. And I get, you know, I, I have that conversation with athletes all the time. And my, the first thing I say to them, I go, how do you know how much you're sleeping? How do you, how do you really know? What athletes often do is say, okay, I went to bed at 10 o'clock and I got my alarm clock went off at eight. So there I got to do the math. I got uh, 10 hours of sleep. It doesn't work that way. When you actually measure people's sleep with brainwave technology, people are very poor, 50, 60% accurate in terms of how much they really sleep. They often don't take into account sleep disturbances. So you may, it's not uncommon to, you know, wake up 10, 12 times a night, such a light sleep, you go right back to sleep again. You don't even know you woke up. So I, I do use technology, particularly sleep trackers, just to see as a guide, not as an ongoing thing, but as a one-time thing to athletes to say, you know, you need to figure out if your feelings are accurate. If you're telling me you're getting eight hours of sleep, let's see it, right? Sometimes athletes tell you they're getting eight hours and they're really getting six. Um, and not that they're lying to you, is that the, the humans just aren't very good at knowing what their sleep patterns look like. So that said, so typically when we talked about these sort of circadian patterns, our sleep goes into very similar kinds of patterns. So when we go, and one of the critical things I tell athletes is sleep is not an on-off switch, right? So it's not you're awake, you're asleep, you're asleep, you're awake. It's not, doesn't work that way. Your brain, even it goes into a changing pattern, even an hour or two before you actually fall asleep, which you have degraded performance. 
And the same when you wake up, everybody wakes up, you get groggy feeling. It's called sleep inertia. That's typical. It lasts, can last a half an hour or longer. So you get this performance on both ends of falling asleep and, and waking up. But once you fall asleep, you tend to go in from a light sleep, you go into a deeper, deeper, deeper sleep. And that's, you can measure that with brainwaves. So it's really sort of makes you harder to wake up. You're in, and then you, and you go back up and it's like a cycle. You go back up, up into a lighter sleep and then you go. And as you come up to the lighter sleep, you get, you come what's called REM sleep, rapid eye movement sleep. And that's where you dream. And then it goes back down into a deeper sleep and then back up to a lighter sleep and into REM. And you go into those kinds of cycles, four or five cycles a night. But what's interesting is most of the REM sleep, the rapid eye movement sleep is back-ended. So it, you, a lot of it occurs between six, seven and eight hours of sleep. So if you are not, if you're only sleeping five, six hours, you're not getting the full benefit of the REM sleep. And athletes ask me all the time, well, what's more important, REM sleep or deep sleep or light sleep? Right. And I say, what's more important, your heart or your lungs? <laughs> They're all important, right? And they all have, uh, and they all do different things. And so, it, and, and, the, and your brain will decide what stage of sleep that you, they need, the brain needs to recover. And so, you can, so a lot of these sleep trackers are saying, oh, look, you can measure how much REM sleep you get or how much deep sleep you get. First of all, trackers can't actually measure that. And second of all, all that does is create anxiety amongst athletes because you can't do any, even if it's accurate, you can't do anything about it. All it's telling you is your brain is tell your brain decides what sleep stage you're in. Uh, some of the experiments they've done over the years, they show, you know, keep people awake for 24, 48, 72 hours, and then let them sleep and look at their brain waves. They go right into a deep sleep and stay there for a very long period of time. And so your brain knows what it needs to fully recover and just let your brain do its thing. Don't try to interfere with it. <laughs> um, you know, so, um, so those are the, those are the, you know, the real issues I think around sort of um, sleep cycles is don't pay too much attention to it. But what it does say is you need to get at, um, at least seven and a half, uh, all, the, all of the research showing you can max your reaction. Most people can max a reaction time out somewhere between seven and a half and nine hours of sleep. But that's on a regular basis. So what happens with teen, particularly with teenagers, is they not it's not just lifestyle issues. It's it's all the other pressures they have with academics and their families and everybody else. They tend to stay up late during and get little sleep during the week and try to crash on weekends and catch up to it. Um, many athletes can't do that because they play games on the weekends. Right? So it's a matter of creating balance. And so what I say to athletes is, look, you, nobody's helping you. You've got teachers, you've got coaches, you've got everybody telling you what to do. You're the one who's going to have to get a, a, a diary out and figure out how to balance all of these things and how to get your eight hours of sleep a night. Yeah. A lot of good points there. And a couple I want to yeah. uh, ask before I forget, and we go on to some, some other uh, topics here. So I'm terrible about remembering dreams and this is just for my own, you know, I guess benefit here, but I'm terrible about remembering dreams. I hardly ever remember them. So does that mean, could that be a sign that you're not getting REM sleep or what could cause you not to remember uh, dreams very often? Because it's like, I'm just out and it's like, I'm black for, for eight hours or whatever, you yeah. know? So the, it's very interesting. The, the, the research around that is uh, most people actually, you remember the, if you, if you wake up, in a REM cycle or close to a REM cycle, then you'll remember Then a lot of times people will remember their dreams. So a lot of the research will actually study people's brain waves in the lab. And then when they go into REM sleep, like physically wake them up and ask them what they're dreaming. So it may just very well be that you're waking up in a light sleep and you're not waking up in a, in a REM sleep. Okay. So, but it doesn't, it doesn't, doesn't mean, even if you don't remember your dreams, doesn't mean any, doesn't mean anything. Okay. And as far as napping, because you were talking about, okay, we were cyclic in nature uh, and short nap, long nap, naps at all. Does that throw me off? I, I, I bet I know the answer it probably depends, uh, which is the answer to a lot of things. Right. But let's say that, you know, we really feel like we need a nap. Uh, our schedule makes us uh, perhaps need that. Would What would probably be the length that you would suggest on a nap? Just a rough roundabout. Yeah. I'm in time huge, too. Yeah, absolutely. I'm a huge fan of napping. Um, all the professional athletes I've worked with in the NBA and the NHL, in fact, even Major League Baseball, all nap in the afternoon. 
So part of our natural circadian rhythm is actually a dip in the afternoon, usually between what, you know, 12, 31, two o'clock. It's, it's a circadian low, like your, your actual, it's, it's a natural a drop in reaction time. It's a natural, um, and that's a good time to nap. That's, that's why, why everybody walk. falls asleep in my third block class. There you go. Well, you're boring, but that's <laughs> side. No, <laughs> but that's why in some countries they have siestas during that, those periods of time, right? That's a natural part of sort of human evolution to nap during those times. That said, napping is a bit like coffee and caffeine, right? If you take it too close to your normal bedtime, then you're not going to get the sleep when you need to get the sleep. Right? So it's really good um, to nap even for, and particularly probably less than 30 minutes. And it, it'll increase your reaction time and increase your, your memory. Um, but don't do it, you know, if, if you're within a few hours or, or even more of your, you know, your normal bedtime. So again, if you fall asleep, if you normally fall asleep at 10 o'clock at night, don't be napping at eight, <laughs> right? You're not going to get to sleep because you're going to, it'll reduce what's called your sleep pressure in your, on your brain. So your brain is not going to want to have you go to sleep. Um, you know, and napping is, I mean, that's always kind of been difficult for athletes because there's no place to nap, right? There's a famous story of Ken Griffey Jr. when he was with the Mariners. Um, he was supposed to be out batting, I think, and he was fast asleep in the dugout, in the dressing room. <laughs> um, and, you know, and, and the Mariners tried, and like a lot of teams, to try to, because they just don't have the physical space, try to create napping spaces for their, for their athletes. Um, and again, this goes with the timing of everything from, from practices. I know when we were with the Canucks, you know, they own the stadium. They could have, they could have practices anytime they want, but they wanted to be able to have practices, you know, 10 o'clock in the, in the morning. So the athletes can go home afterwards and nap in the afternoon before a game. So, cause they didn't have napping facilities there, but yeah, and I'm a huge fan of napping. I think the kids in kindergarten got it right. Um, <laughs> I'm sure it's too bad high schools don't do it. I think it'd be, um, but yeah, no, I'm, I'm a huge fan of napping, but I, again, if you nap too long, um, your, your brain is going to go into those, into one of those deep sleep cycles and it's going to be harder to wake up and you're going to be groggy for a while. Yeah. And I love, I love you saying that because I just feel like uh, a lot of the times we don't think about what is optimal. We just think about how we can fit certain things within the schedule, like the ultradian rhythm of, of learning, how we, how we focus on 90 minute segments of learning. I teach 90 minute blocks and I teach them back to back to back to back. And I always hate whenever, you know, your second or third class walks in because I'm like, these kids have been, they're, they're well out of the way of being optimized to learn at this point. Uh, and it's just, you know, I, I wish we would take biological considerations uh, into, into true consideration sometimes and think about how we can really optimize learning and performance. Because my last podcast was about motor learning. I'm, you know, I'm obsessed with motor learning, the central nervous system and all those considerations. Well, one other thing about particularly high school kids, because they're all 13 ages and, and, but we see this in professional sports as well. There's 17, 18, 19 year old kids that are, um, you know, playing pro sports is teenagers typically are um, naturally uh, what are called owls. So the, the natural part of the circadian rhythm is to stay up late and sleep in, in the morning. It's not, as my grandfather used to say to me, oh, you're, you're lazy, you know, you, or you get out of bed and get, get going. Right? And it's not that you're being lazy at all. That's your natural circadian rhythm. And that doesn't flip over for a lot of people till they're 24, 25 years old. Um, and that's why there's a you know big push in various states now to change school start times because basically we know and you can't just say to a you know a teenager go to sleep at nine o'clock they can't do it I, mm -hmm. regardless of whether they're on social media or not their brains don't let them that's not how their brains are wired right. and so you know it, it it's helpful as the science evolves and and there's more education particularly for the athletes and then their families and coaches in, you know, school boards and others to really understand um, the biology of these students to help them perform better, right? You're not gonna put a square square peg in a round block forever, right? <laughs> you're, gonna pay a, you're gonna pay a price for that. And that's the funny thing. I, I mean, typically the best group of students I've always interacted with would be my second class, which would be around nine o'clock. 
nine to about 10, about 1045. As far as just being awake, I don't know if they're optimized for learning because we've talked about already being in another class and, and that being perhaps in a sleep deprivation, but they seem to be the most uh, aware at that time. So let's kind of dive into our, our last two major talking points here. Let's talk about things we suggest. I'm getting ready to go to bed tonight. This is a suggestion I can make to all teenagers, pro athletes, college athletes, whatever, that's going to optimize me to sleep better and some things that I definitely want to avoid. So my suggestions and my major avoidances uh, whenever I'm preparing to go to sleep tonight. Right. Okay. So assuming you don't have any major, um, you don't have sleep apnea or some major biological thing going on to what you fall into this category is called sleep hygiene. So, and it's, and it's actually pretty simple. So basically you need to manage light in your bedroom. That is one of the most, if I gave, ever gave advice to athletes, that would be the most critical advice I'd ever give them. Because when, even with your eyes closed, light gets into your brain and starts interrupting with the, the production of melatonin. Um, for my rooms, I have blackout blinds everywhere in bedrooms. It's so, and, and it's so dark. And I got this from the, Dr. Caldwell, who was at that time the head of the US Air Force sleep countermeasures or fatigue countermeasures program. He said, your room needs to be so dark that if you hold your hand a foot from your face and you can still see your hand, it's not dark enough. So incredibly dark rooms means even if you have to put something over, I've had athletes put cardboard over the windows where make a room as dark as possible. That's important. So manage um, light, manage noise. Okay, um, you know, so a lot of this is about having conversations with the people you live in the house with, right? And so it's hard in the city too, man. It's amazing. I, oh, I live, I live in a rural area, you yeah. know, and I go to the city now, and it sounds, it, it sounds like somebody stomping on the roof or something. It's crazy. It is. Um, you know, I actually live about two blocks from a, 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 an ambulance station, and they're all night. They're like they're taking off and coming back, so they take off. The strange thing is that the the people live around them lobbied to get them not to turn their sirens on till they're two blocks away, which is in front of my house. So you don't you don't get like a, a, a noise increasing, increasing, and then disappears. It's just like boom, you got you got a noise. So no, but but there are there are things like um, white noise generators. You can have some background fans and other kinds of things that kind of levels that off a little bit. Um, people use uh, earplugs um, to do that, but managing noise, managing light, um, and this is common sense or should be uh, a comfortable bed. Right? We've, I've, I've worked with athletes that are, you know, seven feet tall that are trying to sleep in a six foot bed. Um, so you have that issue, mattresses get old, um, you know, uncomfortable. Uh, so you, that's important. Um, and then, so that's just your environment and, and heat as well. I mean, I know in Louisiana, it's murder in the summertime. Well, most of the time. Um, and man, we, we've had the hottest December ever. It has been insane. It's finally cooled down some. It was, uh, it was 90 degrees a couple of weeks ago in December. <laughs> Crazy. Yeah. All right. So how do you manage that? You know, you use fans, you have AC, you know, how do you try to try to deal with that? Um, so that's an important consideration. Um, and also just lifestyle issues, trying to calm your brain down before you go to sleep. There are some really simple breathing techniques people can use. And I can, I'll send them off to you if you like. But um, it's, it's uh, professional athletes use them all the time, which is, you know, they get into this slow sort of breathing rhythm, trying to calm their body down. Um, there's a lot of talk about um, blue light. In on you know your smartphones and on your computers, I, I think the jury's out a little bit still on, on on the exposure to blue light around those things. But the problem with um, getting being on your smartphone or on your computer too late in the day is that it keeps your brain active, mm -hmm. right? Absolutely. And it's really hard to go from 100 miles an hour down to 10 to get to sleep, right? And I mean, I see that a lot. It's one of the biggest challenges in professional sports, you know, to be playing, whether it's ice hockey game or a basketball game in front of 20,000 people cheering or booing you or whatever. And, and then, you know, you're off and then an hour later, you're supposed to be falling asleep. Right? You can't do it. Right? Your brain is going a million miles a minute. So there are different techniques that can be used to try to calm yourself down, but certainly try to put your electronics away before you get to sleep. Like don't, have it fall asleep on your face. And actually one of the most important things too is just routine. 
the, your, your brain is used to routine. And so when you, you know, when we get these guys flying all over North America or all over the world playing sports, um, their circadian rhythms are getting jerked around. They can't get into a proper rhythm. Their sleep is all messed up. Um, but if you can get into a routine, okay, I need to get to sleep by 10 o'clock at night because I have to be up at six every day. And I challenge athletes to keep a diary, even for a week, just keep a diary and show them to you to say, okay, I don't care. I don't want tons of details. I want to know when you said you fell asleep, when you woke up, you know, when you had time for meals, when you were studying, you know, when you were doing, um, when you were in school, when you were trial, like in big, broad categories, so that it challenges the athletes to sit down at the end of the week and say, oh God, I didn't realize I was spending all my time doing this or doing that. And where am I going to fit in my eight hours of sleep? Like literally, what, what do I have to change or what do I have to give up to, to do that? So that's, a, that's a, I think, a really helpful um, thing that, get, that engages the athletes as well. And again, if you have some decent thermometers in the school, again, get the athletes to take their and record their uh, body temperature uh, every hour for just one day while they're awake. You'd be, and you can actually see their own circadian rhythms. They can, you know, it gives them a sense that they have better understanding their bodies. I wish I would have thought about that whenever we, whenever we were doing all those temperature measures uh, back whenever yeah. quarantine and COVID and all that first started, <laughs> right? That'd have been, hey, good little data collection there. Yeah. And a couple of those things make sense. I'm not going to out this person, but I've always, I know someone who sleeps with a TV on, can't get them to stop noise on occasionally. And I've always said, I don't know how, how you're still alive with that because that's so detrimental to your, to your sleep. And we know the sleep affects the heart and all these other yeah. things. Uh, so it's just, I don't understand that. And, and the other things that, that we're talking about here, uh, I, I can't read things about sports before I go to sleep or athletic development because I'm studying and my brain is just, I'm like a laser. I want to take notes. I have to read for, I guess one would say pleasure, something on history, not because it's boring, but because I can relax and not feel like I need to lock in like it's a college classroom setting or something. Uh, yeah. So those are some things I've thought about yeah. too. Yeah. Yeah. You know what I do is, is and I learned this cause I, I've flown so much all over the world and sitting on planes being bored and trying to get into, you know, sleep in the afternoon when, you know, when you're four hours cause you're landing in LA and you've been up all night or something is to do, I do Sudoku's and I can tell from my brain that if I reach a certain point where I start going over the same pattern over and over and I realize I can't focus, I can't concentrate anymore. And that puts me to sleep. Um, but so everybody has their own techniques. Even, even somebody, if they sleep with a TV on, not everybody needs to quote, unless you're a high level athlete, did the maximize your performance of the absolute highest level, you know, you know, losing 10% of reaction time isn't the end of the world for most people. Um, but, you know, if you're a, a super high level, you know, high level athlete and your, you know, your career depends on it, um, you need to pay real close attention to stuff like that. Um, but so I'm pretty tolerant. Of, I know there's a people have some quirky things. I know people like to sleep on the floor. People like to do, you know, all kinds of, some people like the room hot, some like it cold, but the issue is to try to find something that works for you. Right. But typically if you can manage light and manage noise and manage comfort, um, you're going a long ways to improve your sleep and, and to be consistent about when you try to get to sleep. So last major talking point, and I'm going to obviously give you an opportunity to talk about where people can find you and all this stuff. I'm a bit uh, obsessed with this too, because it doesn't matter how much you sleep to me if you can't optimize yourself whenever you wake up. And I myself, I do consider myself to be a morning person. And I've gone through all these different, uh, I guess, habits that I've tried. I used to, by out of necessity, have to lift weights in the morning, and that's just not optimal for me at all. I can't really go at it for a workout. But uh, I've, I've found that if I wake up and I'll probably myself and get myself going we've talked about light and i've really got a new appreciation whenever i drive out to work before i drive out just to look at the the sun coming up it just i just have a connection to that and i you know everybody listens to andrew huberman he talks about stuff like this all the time viewing sunlight uh and viewing the sun going down i love that that's a part of my morning uh so maybe you you uh, like that as well but i like to get moving and get myself because i'm so stove up whenever i wake up in the morning i feel like and i feel like if i can just get myself moving and my heart rate up a bit i believe that also gets your biological pattern uh patterning going a little bit earlier uh to be active in the day so you, anything you suggest there as far as optimizing waking patterns? 
Yeah, uh, no, I absolutely agree with you. I, I think all of the research, research shows that when you wake up, you need to get exposed to as much sunlight as you can. Right? And we know, for example, in the wintertime, particularly in the north, not so much in Louisiana, but um, further north where I am, um, the days are short in the wintertime and people don't get exposed to enough sunlight and they get, um, they get what's called sad, they get, they get you know, various disorders as a result of not being exposed to sunlight. And it's one of the, the best things that anybody and particularly athletes can do is, is get out and get exposed to sunlight. But what happens of course, is you have a little bit of exposure while you get to school, then they clamp you in a classroom and you get exposed to artificial light, um, which isn't, isn't the same. So, you know, I, if you can get a chance to be outside and be, be exposed to sunlight, that's the best thing you can do. What, because the sunlight goes right through your eye into your center brain and tells your whole body that it's daylight out and, and prevents the production of melatonin that makes you drowsy and sleepy in the mornings. So yeah, exposure to sunlight and exercise is the two best things you can do. And that's one of the few things you can do for jet lag, for example, is to get exposed to sunlight and to exercise. Yeah, absolutely. And it's amazing, like whenever I don't, if I if I'm trying to take on something, because in the morning, if you were to ask me, I love to study in the morning. I'd rather not have to do anything but have study time. That doesn't often happen. That's just whenever my, my brain feels optimized to learn and to try new things and to explore. But if I don't do the movement early, it just shifts you back. And and you know, I think research supports that biologically you can move yourself forward, I believe, a couple of hours depending upon movement strategies uh, early on. Yeah, and I, I think it's uh, I mean, you're obviously more body aware than you know many people many young athletes is that they don't get to learn that right so they don't understand they don't get to be body aware they don't get to um you know take reaction time tests you can go on the internet now and plug into you know free websites and take reaction time tests you know there are ways to give themselves feedback you can take your temperature and get feedback get them more body aware and understand how exposure to sunlight how sleep and all of these things affect their actual performance because you can actually see their reaction time they can see their body temperature right and to get them to get them more aware and make more intelligent decisions yeah and this has been this has been a great conversation uh to end out this conversation obviously you've got a great book out uh that you co-authored with your daughter and it's called inconvenient sleep my teams win and lose so uh giving you an opportunity to talk about where people can find that and maybe a little bit of rationale behind the text and then i believe you also have a firm in which you do fatigue management strategies correct uh so you can kind of talk about what you offer there and where people can find you i'll link all that stuff in the show notes because i know that you have a quality product to provide people. No, I appreciate that. Yeah. So what, one quick thing, and my co-author is my uh, daughter, who's a sports lawyer and graduate of Tulane. So plug down to Greenway. <laughs> yeah. Not so great in sports, but I don't think that. Uh, <laughs> they're okay. They'll ask God. No, I love New Orleans. Um, so yeah, we wrote the book largely because we've been involved in this across all different sports and militaries and industry for many years. And we find people like yourselves and others who would just don't have the time to do the basic research. And it's not that, it's not like a lot of sort of mature sciences like chemistry or something. There are specific sources you can go to. You know, on the sleep side, it's scattered all over the place. There's, you know, stuff published, really good stuff published in military journals that the public don't, don't read, right? And there are certain universities that do research and some of it's concentrated in, in various areas. A lot of research in Australia, there's a lot in the UK. And so we thought, you know, we need to just pull all this together and try to make some sense of it for people like yourselves and for athletes and sort of know where to look. So you say there's a lot of kind of reference material in there. And um, if you look in the book, and I get criticized for this because we actually put a hidden chapter at the back of the book, which is after the references. I don't know if you saw that or not. It's called Why We Wrote This Book, which is a story about um, you know, some of the, the characters that we've met and interviewed, um, um, particularly as I saw that one with the swimming coach from Australia. If you read that section, he's a funny, very, very funny guy. Um, and it just shows some of the resilience of coaches and, and, and what they'll do to, to help help their athletes. And so we put, it took, it took us probably a year and a half to do the research and write the book and um, didn't do it for making money, obviously not, but it's available on Amazon. I think Walmart carries it. Virtually every online bookstore will carry the book. And so, yeah, it's, we've got a lot of really good feedback. It's, it's about, it's storytelling. So we don't, it's not preachy. It's not a lot of science. 
um, we, we talk, we use a lot of analogies. We try to help people understand that science is complex and in that scientists um, do good work and sometimes they don't do good work. And we talk about people that are fake data. We talk to just to be skeptical when you read data. Part of the challenge around sleep is that um, in virtually all athletic performance research is that they have very few subjects. You know, most of the research involves less than 30 people. Well, in the broad scheme of things for science, that's drop in the bucket. Most people just laugh at that. If you try to produce a, you know, a, any kind of an epidemiological study with 30 people, they'd laugh at you. <laughs> and so that's one of the great challenges is that you get this dynamic where the athletes want solutions. They want to be better. They want to learn. And the science is just starting to catch up. And so we're trying to help them to be, you know, to be discriminating about what they do. A lot of people are trying to sell them wearables and try to tell them, oh, look, this, you can measure performance with this, you can do that. But all of that stuff is hidden. If you go to the websites and ask to say, well, prove to me that this actually does what it says to do, they can't do it. And so most wearables are not regulated. I can produce a wearable and tell you it'll do anything, but it's not regulated. It's only when they try to sell it for medical purposes, is it regulated. It's the same with supplements. And so a lot of athletes will go out and take melatonin for example, and there's a lot That's of a good point. We, I mean, we never yeah. even talked about that as far as melatonin, like the amount that we naturally need and what we're actually getting from, from that. It's, and it's unregulated, like you said, absolutely. But, yeah. But it's one of the most researched, there are over 3000 research papers around melatonin and people still can't decide whether it works or it doesn't work. <laughs> if it works, it's really, it's really minimal. What you do, what you're trying to mimic is you're when you're in darkness, when you're not exposed to light, your brain naturally produces melatonin to put you to sleep. So the theory is, well, we'll just help our brain along and add some more melatonin to it. It's not even clear whether your brain can take, take advantage of that or not. The other big challenge around uh, supplements because they're not regulated is there was a, a great study done a few years ago, and we talked about this in our book, that the vast majority of melatonin supplements don't contain what they say they contain. So if they say you should take three milligrams of this, the pill may not even have three milligrams. It may have eight milligrams or one milligram. There's just no quality control. I say to athletes, don't put anything into your body. You don't know what's going in there. Right. And so just be, so part, part of the reason we wrote the book is to really try to make athletes a little bit skeptical about skeptical about some of the research that's out there and some of the products that are out there and to kind of take ownership of, of, of that for themselves. So th that was kind of the main sort of motivating factor. Um, we do, we work with athletes, um, individual athletes. And uh, I use a technology that I had developed with my other company called Fatigue Science that I reti I've retired from. I don't, not affiliated with anymore, but we created technology that's attached to uh, US Air Force technology um, that they bought that allows you to track circadian rhythms in real time and sleep in real time. And I just, you know, sleep wake cycles. Um, and so that's tied to smartphones. So I, I work with athletes like literally all over the world. I can get their sleep in real time. Last year I worked with a really high level NBA player and I try I know where, where he was in North America. I knew what his sleep was that night. I've worked with tennis players in Australia. Um, I can flip my computer up in the morning and I can tell how much they slept last night. And so, you know, the technology has gotten to the point where we can help athletes on an individual level, not just kind of on a, on a team level. So we do that. We work with individual athletes. We do a lot of training um, for uh, teams, both, you know, both in industry teams and in, in sports teams. Um, it's, it's, it's pretty wide open. And now that uh, Suzanne, my daughter is, uh, uh, mostly practicing in law. So I'm doing most of the, virtually all the training myself now around those kinds of things. But I want, I want, I want to train people like yourselves so that you can teach the athletes, right? That's where we wrote the book so that you can, you can understand the, the, the science and understand. So you can actually work with the athletes themselves because they, um, they clearly don't have time. Right? And, and as I said, you know, this whole sleep research and sleep and athletic performance is where strength and conditioning was 30, 40 years ago. And there's a lot of catching up to do, um, but it's an exciting area. And it's an area that athletes really need to pay attention to. You're right that this is an exciting this area. 
some people might not think that, but I like science. I like to read science. But like you said, our goal today was to kind of inform our audience and we hit the high points. And, and hopefully at the end of this, everybody understands. I think people understand sleep is important. I think we now maybe understand a little bit more what we can do. There are easy, actionable steps that everybody can take uh, to provide better uh, atmospheres for them to sleep in and better environments. And then also to optimize ourselves going forth uh, into the day, because it's not just how you start today. It's how you start and end the day that's really going to come together in the middle where you're asked to produce something. Uh, so you've done a really good job of painting a picture here uh, and informing uh, my audience and myself as well, at the same time not being overly scientific to where it goes over uh, everyone's head. So I'm going to link everything uh, so that people can get in contact with you if they wish to do so, as well as the book so people can look into this a little bit. I just want to thank you for taking time to sit down with me. It's been a stimulating conversation. My pleasure. Thanks a lot. I hope you enjoyed this week's episode. Check out the show notes for links to Pat's book, Inconvenient Sleep, Why Teams Win and Lose. I've also provided a link to his consulting firm, Fern Fatigue Consulting. Don't forget to use my code FTGUPOD15 to save $15 on the virtual speed and performance clinic. Again, that's FTGUPOD15. Links are in the show notes. Subscribe to keep up to date with all the latest content and leave a rating and review if you feel led to do so.